what I believe was the title of two separate essays by the philosopher Bertrand Russell and the novelist E.M. Forster in the early 20th century. These two humanist activists set out their approach to life, their fundamental worldview, in a way that was accessible to all. I'm Andrew Copson, Chief Exec of Humanists UK, and in this podcast I'm talking to humanists today about what they believe, to understand more about the values, convictions and opinions they live by. Dame Angela Eagle has been the MP for Wallasey since 1992 and an active member of the Labour Party since she first joined aged 17 in 1978. She served as the Minister of State for Pensions and Ageing Society in 2009-10 and following the general election in 2010 was appointed Shadow Chief Secretary to the Treasury and in 2011 Shadow Leader of the House of Commons. In 2015 she was appointed as Shadow Secretary of State for Business Innovation and Skills, a position she held until June 2016 and has since then served on the backbenches. Her twin sister Maria was elected as Member of Parliament for Liverpool Garston in 1997, giving Angela and Maria the unique status of being the first twins elected as MPs, and later the first twins serving as Ministers of State. Angela was appointed to DB in 2021, but most importantly, of course, she's a patron of Humanists UK. Angela, thank you for joining us on What I Believe. My pleasure. I think it's obvious where we have to start. You're uh, a Labour politician, very involved in, in the Labour movement, wider than that, not just as a, as, a, as a Member of Parliament. So I'm assuming that that says quite a lot about your values. Uh, I think you'd assume correctly. I almost feel like I was born into uh, the Labour movement, although my mum and dad didn't actually join the Labour Party until my twin sister Maria and I had already joined at the age of 16. Um, so my dad was a very active trade unionist in the print trade. Um, my mum was a dressmaker, but self-employed a lot of the time. And they were both from Sheffield, both from very working class families in Sheffield. So they were Labour voters, but they hadn't actually ever got as far as joining until we did. But we had a very political sort of upbringing, really, I read the newspaper from a very young age. I developed and was encouraged to develop, I think, very strong views about what was wrong with society and and uh, what could be done to make it better. And I think that came from listening to the stories in my family about how my mum and dad's chances in life had really been written off from a very young age because they were working class that they hadn't really been allowed to go on in education. My mum was a very clever person, but she she passed the 11 plus. She came from a very, very poor background in, in Sheffield. And when she went to the grammar school, she couldn't afford, her parents couldn't afford the uniform. They didn't understand why she was going there. She had nowhere to do her homework. Uh, and, and it was clear from the teacher's point of view that they wanted somebody middle class to be at the school rather than her. And so she didn't have support, couldn't cope. And so she left very quickly. And, and when she went to the Labour Exchange, as was then, and said she wanted to work in an office, they just looked at her and said, you're, you're a factory girl. So she ended up in Biscuit Factory, uh, at, left school at 14. And... 
my dad similarly failed his 11 plus he can still remember the questions that he didn't know the answers to and he's 85 now um but he was uh, very good with uh, as an artist and so he wanted to go to the Slade in London that's what he really really wanted to do same age as David Hockney that generation and he was just told when he was 15 16 that he had to leave school and go to work he went to art school you see because he was good um but not allowed to carry on so i always saw this as very much my mum and dad's opportunities being taken off them and did you grow up with these stories then yes yeah with their own experiences and my dad ended up in the print trade which was a pre-entry closed shop at the time and very very um trade union orientated uh, my mum likewise had strong opinions and so i suppose that's where my views came from a desire to make sure that those kinds of opportunities that they should have had would never be denied to generation, future generations. My mum and dad used to say, you're not going to make the same mistakes as I do. You're going you know, to stay on at school. And, and it never occurred to either my sister or I that we wouldn't go to university, even though we were the first uh, children in our extended family ever to go to university. And we both went to Oxford. You, you thought that they they should have had those opportunities than your parents. Is that what you felt when you heard those stories? You thought they should have had them. I thought it was so unfair that just because of somebody's working class, humble background, they weren't afforded opportunities that to to make the most of themselves, get the most out of their lives, do the things that they were talented at, and that they were pigeonholed as as you're a factory girl by the people that were meant to be getting them jobs. And it was just the class system at its height. You know, my dad's opportunities were sort of strangled out of him by having to go to work and not being able to stay on at art school. I just felt that we needed a society that allowed everybody to flourish, not just the lucky few. And why did you think where, why did you think that? I mean, where do you think that came from? Because some people could have had had that experience and thought, oh, well, you know, this is just how life is. Or you might have had that experience and think, well, you know, people do get what they deserve. But you, you obviously didn't. You felt differently. You thought that actually people had, what, a right to opportunity, a right to a chance at a flourishing life, a right to make the most of their talents? Yes, and I thought that it would also benefit our country. Um, to have that and of course as I was growing up we'd had a period of Labour government which had expanded educational opportunities and when I was beginning to be really politically conscious and you have to remember I I, um, I stood as a Labour candidate in a mock election in 1970 when I was nine years old so it was quite young that I was <laughs> in, uh, doing this the big controversy was about uh, creating comprehensive schools and getting rid of the 11 plus and and uh, and dealing with the the class system which is what the then labor government was trying to do uh, and uh, and so i suppose that was when i was most politically formed it's one thing to have um strong political values and to think these things that you've said about opportunity and wanting everyone to have the opportunity and, and education it's quite another there that to then plunge yourself into this as a profession um as a um a life's work i guess what what were your motivations in 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 making those choices or is it was it more of a series of contingencies that took you in this direction no, I, I think I wanted to be a member of parliament from quite a young age. Uh, um, uh, 
And I suppose it's a bit, being in the Labour Party is a bit like um, my religion, secular, of course, uh, in that it's something that's bigger than you, where you can contribute to a collective effort to make things better and, and, and remake society in a way that you think uh, is better than the one that you're growing up in. And so I just thought that that was the way to to make a difference and I wanted to be part of that battle really so I didn't really think I want to do this because I want to be an MP first and foremost I wanted to have change um, and be a part of trying to organize for change and it just seemed to me that the labor and trade union movement was the way to do it. Does, does the idea of change and the remaking of society does that occupy a, a significant place in your own worldview? Well, yes, because there are so many things that still need to be achieved in order to increase um, fairness. I, I can tell you a little story about when I first realised that life wasn't exactly fair for women, because uh, I'd been brought up by my mum and dad um, to to just think automatically that, that women would be included. It, and I was eight years old, my dad worked on shifts, and he, uh, he had developed uh, a liking for chess um, during the long evenings uh, and night shifts when he had to do lots of work at the beginning and then there was a printing process that took a few hours so there was spare time when you had to keep an eye on the machines but you weren't actively involved Um, and so he took up chess. My mum was too busy uh, sort of doing her work to play very much with him so he taught me and my sister my twin sister Maria, to play when we were eight. And we began beating him almost straight away. So being my dad, he carted us off to the nearest chess club. And um, I remember vividly um, my first tournament, which was uh, in the uh, under-11s of the uh, Formby Chess Club's championship. (laughs) And my sister went into the under-13s because we didn't want to have to play each other. Um, and we were the only girls there. Now, that that was a surprise to me to begin with. Um, and then I sat down to play my first ever game, competitive game of chess. And this little boy sat next to, in front of me, is to be my opponent. And he just looked horrified and started saying, no, 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 this can't be right. This can't be right. Girls don't play chess. Wow. And I was thinking, what's up with him? And then I thought, oh, wait a minute. He's frightened of losing to a girl. It clicked. I suddenly realised. And um, so we did lose to a girl. Um, <laughs> I did win the tournament. And then I was. Uh, then my reward was a Biggles book. So that, that immediately um, uh, made me realise that they hadn't expected a girl to enter, much less a girl to win. And uh, pursuing my chess career, and I was a junior international, an international player. Really? I didn't know any of this about you. With um, and, and held national titles. Um, you know, there's a lot of prejudice, or there was then, against girls and women playing chess. Apparently our brains are too small, etc. So I suddenly then thought, oh... So the world's not really fair for women. There's this prejudice. And I thought, well, the best way of dealing with that is to be this boy's worst nightmare. 
<laughs> is that what you've been pursuing ever since? <laughs> yes, yes, a little bit. I mean, because obviously they're shocked and then they're discombobulated and then their their concentration suffers and then you beat them. <laughs> so I suppose my my sort of um, one of my big motivations in my political career has always been to try to achieve much more equality, get rid of bigotry and discrimination. Um, for much more equality for women and all those who are against whom there is prejudice. And um, I think that's where it started. Hi, this is Andrew, appearing halfway through the podcast to remind you that this is a podcast from Humanist UK, the national charity working on behalf of non-religious people to advance free thinking and promote a tolerant society. If you'd like to support the podcast or find out more about the Humanist Approach to Life, Humanist UK, or the work that we do, you can find out more at the Humanist UK website, humanists.uk. And if you like what you see, please consider giving us your support or joining as a member. I think in a time when many progressive people think that they're fighting to, to some extent a defensive uh, battle quite often, to hear from someone who's for whom it's a big important part of their approach to life that the possibility of change and the remaking of society you know that that almost seems old yeah old old fashioned optimism <laughs> <laughs> i mean i remember vividly going um when i was after i'd been elected to the house of commons um going to uh, on a with with the employment select committee to look at uh, what they quaintly called mothers in employment which i wanted to call women in employment and uh, and i remember visiting um the danish um union of women workers they they said to to me we are so envious of you because you've still got so much to fight for and of course they'd won most of their battles and I thought well that's one way of looking at it but no, I, it I'd quite like to live in a more equal society like you do. Do you think I mean when, when it comes to sex equality which I assume is what you're, you're aiming for with with you know in relation to the position of women is that a value in itself for you or is it something is it a part and parcel of a, a wider search for equality or wish for equality or you know desire for equality in society i mean i think it is a, a value in itself but it, it 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 feeds into a society that has less prejudice and less discrimination is a better a nicer um more effective more socially reasonable society which will be happier and more fulfilled i think if you ignore the needs and requirements of half of the population, you're never going to uh, get to that better society that even as a, a as a little girl watching the news, I, I thought we needed to have. So uh, it, it applies equally, uh, although the, there are fewer people, to uh, those who are BAME or gay people, those who have got disabilities. Just I, I don't have any respect for that kind of blind prejudice and I think it just we just have to um, root it out and um, do all we can in the way that we organize our societies to frown upon it and, and reduce it to its absolute minimum. Because you have also uh, played a part um, both through your own life and through your politics as well in uh, pursuing greater LGBT equality obviously 
in your own. I always get this wrong because I always say so-and-so was the first out gay woman or so-and-so was the first, and then it turns out that they weren't. But were you the first? <laughs> I, was, I was the first um, voluntarily out. Oh, right. And, and <laughs> I was, I was I, female, obviously, lesbian. Yeah. I was the first um, lesbian minister who was out. Um, but the, the the first lesbian in the House of Commons that we know of um, was Maureen Colquhoun, who sadly died um, yes, late yes, yeah. uh, last year. And she was outed by Nigel Dempster, the vicious um, gossip columnist on the Daily Mail, and subsequently lost her seat. Um, so my experience was much nicer than hers. Yeah. And you did you make it a virtue? to be out, to be self-declared and... Well, I wasn't out when I was first elected in 1992. I came out when we went into government in, in 1997. And that was partially, I never hid it particularly. Um, but I, I I wanted to move in with Maria, my girlfriend. Um, it, it just seemed a, a sensible time to do it. I mean, it's odd when you're LGBT, Tea because you have to make these statements and 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 come out in this in this way in which heterosexual people never do. But um, it it was um, it was a wholly uh, good, if somewhat frightening, sort of frightening to contemplate, but a, a good experience for me, and I don't regret doing it. I remember thinking prior to um, the interview with Suzanne Moore at the Independent um, coming out the night before. I remember thinking. Uh, well, if I lose my seat, then so be it. I'm just going to have to um, put up with it. This has got to be done. And I think when you give up that kind of sort of desire to control everything um, and somehow be in control of, of what might happen to you, then it it's a, a very freeing, liberating thing. And I learned that lesson uh, on the eve of the general election in 1992 when I, I, uh, I won the most marginal seat in the Northwest, even though Labour lost the election. Um, and it's almost like instead of having this human view that somehow you're in charge of absolutely everything that happens in your life, you have to accept that anything can happen and you've just got to make the best of it. And once you stop struggling with that... Um, I think that, that life's a lot more enjoyable. Do you think that, is that consistent with your wider view that a lot actually can be done and should be done by human beings working hard to make changes? It's a strange belief to hold in parallel. On the one hand, we can do it, we can change the world, which is a pretty big claim. And on the other hand, we must accept that, uh, you know, or not, you know, there's a, there's a piece in giving up a pretense to power um i think there's um i think there's a, a there's a piece in giving up a pretense to being in charge of everything that doesn't mean you can't affect a load of things and you can affect them positively or negatively uh, and if you can cooperate in a more collective way you can affect them more more than if you try to do it on your own very very few people um get the chance to um, be such change makers as of themselves. We could name a few, I suppose, positive and negative, Gandhi, Hitler. Um, very few people get that chance to 
remake or make history differently. Uh, but in the way in which everybody lives their lives, I think in the way in which you um, cooperate with other people in the view that you try to um, to articulate about about a, a vision of where where society could be better, um, whether you do it culturally, politically, or just in your own life, all of that has an effect in my view. I want to come back to the question of cooperation with others in a moment because I think that's very interesting. I want to take further, but I I just wanted to go back for now to that moment uh, when you were talking about uh, coming out in the interview um, that you did, and when you said that it was you thought, oh well, you were at peace with it because it had to be done. And I just wondered what why you thought it had to be done. I just felt it was the time. Yeah, but but what? Why was it a political statement? Was it for your own peace of mind? Was it to help others? What was the point of it? Um, I was I was a minister. I knew that um, it was something I, I wanted to move in with my girlfriend. It just seemed to be that time of our lives where we we wanted to be more obviously open than we've been, and it just seemed the right time. I don't I I didn't sort of plot and plan it um, that much, um, but I did. <laughs> I remember I um, I. I went to see Chris Smith. Just I, I knew what I was that I was going to come out, but I thought, well, I'll just go and talk to the person who did it before anybody else, just to see if he's got any any advice for me. And I was a junior minister at the time, and he was in the cabinet. It's very difficult for junior ministers to get, you know, a, a time to have a meal with a cabinet minister without telling half the civil service why you want to do it. So that took a while, and. I remember going to uh, have the meal and um, we'd got all the way through to the the dessert and I still hadn't sort of and I was thinking oh, how do I how do I do this you know this it seems so artificial but anyway I managed to blurt it out uh, before the meal was over and he was completely gobsmacked uh, very pleased and very supportive I had some good advice for me um and I noticed very much um I, I then thought, well, I've got to tell my boss, who was John Prescott at the time. I can't just do this behind his back, so I've got to tell him um, that um, I'm going to do this. And so then I had to get a, a meeting with him, which his private office wanted to know about what it was about, and it's just like, personal, personal, you know, and that <laughs> took ages. And so I told him, and he said, tell me something I didn't know already, love. <laughs> and I told him, and he said, can I give you a hug? And I said, yes, and so we had a hug. And um, then he said, you better go and tell Peter Mandelson. So I had to then go off to the Cabinet Office and tell Peter that I was going to do this. And he was gobsmacked. And then I realised that, you know, all the gay men were gobsmacked and all the heterosexual men were, oh, yeah, yeah, we know. <laughs> anyway, it's quite an interesting experience. But they were very supportive and Tony was very supportive, Downing Street. They, were, they, were, they couldn't have been nicer to me. And I have to say, my, um, my constituents were extremely supportive, almost wholly as well. You mentioned Maria. Um, and that girlfriend, Maria, with whom you wanted to move in, you're now... Are you married or, anyway, you're civilly partnered anyway? Well, we're civilised, as we Yes, you're civilised. Um, that's good. And uh, this slightly could shade into our discussion about cooperating with others because, of course, the <laughs> most... St <laughs> 
of different beliefs, I mean, because the most striking thing uh, for me is obviously you're a humanist. Maria's a Catholic. Yes, she comes to our no prayer breakfast at conference and surreptitiously prays at the back. She does come to humanist events, yeah, yeah, exactly. She's secretly praying the whole time at humanist events. Um, obviously, she's a very, she's a very open and cooperative person herself, um, but she obviously is Catholic and 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 she does have uh, those beliefs. And I think whenever I hear you speak about um, the need for humanists to cooperate with others and to work with others and to have an open approach to people with different beliefs. That's a very striking part of what you believe, I think. And is that uh, in part uh, um, a consequence of your own relationship or is it just how you can have the relationship in the first place that you already have that attitude towards people of different beliefs and diversity? And and also, of course, Maria is more on the at the left than I am as well. So, I mean, politically, we have our interesting times as well. It it is a bit like um, uh, uh, West Side Story. <laughs> um, but but um, I I think that that love kind of is uh, transcends those kinds of things. And if you're so narrow-minded that you can't respect other people's beliefs, even if you don't share them, then I'd, I'd, I'd you know, I'd, that's not the sort of person I'd want to be. I don't want somebody to tell me what to think or what I should be thinking or to try to evangelise me in that way. Um, I want them to respect my beliefs. And, and in exchange, I think it's perfectly reasonable to respect theirs, even if I don't essentially um, agree about there being a God out there. She always calls me a Protestant atheist because obviously <laughs> I, yeah, I, 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 was, I was around um, sort of the Church of England rather than uh, the Catholic um, Church when, um, when, when I was growing up. But uh, I just think you're affected by... Uh, traditions that you grow up in but your beliefs are what you develop yourself and you do you do have it as a value that um, humanists should work more with communicate more with build more common alliances with religious people I think that probably the split uh, that I see in politics and the contention in religion as well at the moment is actually between extremism and fundamentalism and those people who are more pragmatic, who are who who have a different uh, view and are more live and let live in terms of what people believe, so that you can look to see if there are values like helping people eat by working in a food bank. You can do that as a humanist. You can do that out of your religious conviction. And I don't see why um, two volunteers who come from those different directions shouldn't, shouldn't be able to do good together themselves, regardless of whether they believe that there's a God motivating it or they just they have a humanist belief. Um, and so I suppose I'm quite pragmatic like that. I have to say as well that um, since being elected, and it's nearly 30 years ago now, I have seen an awful lot of good work done in the community uh, in, in the name of religion in a way that isn't evangelizing in a way that I would find uh, offensive or difficult. And so I just think you have to meet people where they are and see what you have in common. Opportunity for all, contributing to a collective effort, remaking society and being a pragmatic humanist. Angela Eagle, thank you for telling us what you believe. Thank you very much. That was Angela Eagle telling us about her life and her outlook on the world as a humanist for the What I Believe podcast. 
What I Believe is a weekly podcast from Humanist UK, and this was the fourth episode of the fourth season. We'll be releasing new episodes every Thursday. If you'd like to support the podcast, find out more about Humanism, Humanist UK, or the work that we do, you can find out more on the Humanist UK website, humanist.uk. And if you like what you see, please consider joining up as a supporter or a member. You can also find more about humanism by purchasing the Sunday Times bestseller, The Little Book of Humanism, available online and at all good bookshops. Mm -hmm.